to uh, Mosaic Church. I hope that you have already been blessed um, by our time together. As a reminder of who I am, my name is Jordan. I'm the lead pastor here uh, of Mosaic Church, and, uh, and we hope uh, that you uh, feel loved and welcomed uh, for who you are, not for who you wish you could be, and I hope that you'll continue to be blessed um, by our service this morning. A couple of things just to keep on your radar, primarily for next Sunday. Next Sunday is a big um, week of, in many ways, celebrating transitions, celebrating major milestones and changes. Um, and, and as I think we can all at very least agree um, that many of these are uh, are bittersweet as we celebrate something like Grad Sunday. We are, we celebrate because these are major milestones, um, but we also know that with these massive milestones, it means change comes. And so that next week, we are going to be celebrating um, this moment that some of you, especially some parents, um, have either been dreading or excited for or a little bit of both um, next week. Uh, so we hope that you'll join us as we celebrate the achievement in this milestone uh, in the lives of uh, of some of our uh, teenagers, young people, however you want to define them. Um, and speaking of uh, transition and changes and milestones, um, next Sunday uh, will be Jennifer and my uh, last Sunday as your pastor, um, or I guess it will be my last Sunday as your pastor and our last Sunday um, officially uh, a part of this uh, leadership and this family. Um, and so I hope that you will be able to join us uh, for one last time um, to, to, yeah, to meet together, to eat together. Um, we are having a dinner following the service. Um, and, and of course, this is just the reminder that I give people in general. Um, but we, for those that may not know, we have bought a house in Keysville. We're moving on Saturday, which is a little bit terrifying, but it's good. It's good. It's great. Um, but we are going to still be around, so just that reminder that even though relationships change and transition, um, we are still going to be around and we'd still love uh, to maintain that relationship that we've built over these last six years um, with you. But that is coming up um, next Sunday following worship together. I'd love to just be able to, you know that, that having meals with you is one of my favorite things, and so I would love to have you uh, stick around, bring something to eat if you can, a uh, dish to pass, and we will uh, enjoy uh, some time together next Sunday. Uh, Nate's coming back up to the platform. He's going to be leading us in our morning scripture reading, and then we're going to transition into our teaching time together. Thank you, Nathaniel. Thank you, Nathaniel. <laughs> you know what, bud? Even in that, you did a good job. 
Uh, so we are transitioning to our teaching time, and this is a, um, a series that uh, is just a, kind of a three-parter uh, that we began uh, two weeks ago. Uh, last week, for those that weren't here, we had our, our field day, the field day, which was absolutely massive. It's probably just as well that we didn't have a full service because that, the, the parade that started at noon, um, the, the street was already packed out. Um, and it was, a it was a great big long parade, but it was such a, uh, so it's probably just as well if you were trying to get home, um, it, it would have been nearly impossible. Uh, but I do want to also just thank anyone that was involved in that day. Um, it made it so much easier on me because I uh, did not end up having to, uh, to work quite as hard because we had so many great people involved in that pre-parade um, outreach. We had a bounce house and some snow cones, and I feel like it was a hit, um, and it couldn't have been as much of a hit if it wasn't for, um, for all of the folks that were involved in that. I know uh, Jessica and Warren kind of took the lead on that, uh, but I know Adam was involved, Heather was involved, Marcia, you did some stuff with Heidi um, in the bounce house. Um, I'm sure I'm going to be forgetting people, so if I'm forgetting you, I blame the sun. Um, it, I, I blame the sunstroke I got. Not that your contribution wasn't incredible. Um, and you guys are amazing, and you always tend to blow me away in these events, and this is uh, one of them as well. Um, so we're kind of moving through these, these, final, um, these final three weeks, and it was, it's been really challenging to try to decide um, how, to, how to end your time with a group of people that you love so much. And one of the, the things that, that you just try to, I'm trying to do and hopefully doing is distilling down uh, the, the important messages, the important concepts that, that I believe I, I want to leave you with as we kind of finish this season together. And so a couple of weeks ago, uh, when we started this, we talked about um, the importance of, of being rooted, of having the foundation of our life uh, deeper and deeper with God and going back to him. And we talked about the, uh, the concept of, of a well and having a deep well that springs up from within us as we tie ourselves more and more to Christ. And, and this week we transition um, and we, we hear the words that Nate read, and we're actually going to come back to that in a few minutes, about the impact of what happens when we tie our lives into God, when we are committed to serving God. And it's, it's interesting because one of the, I think one of the, uh, the offshoots of modernity, and that's a big term to just, be, to just speak of the, the modern age, we've developed these interesting patterns that when, when the Bible was written in particular, and much of ancient uh, literature that still impacts us today, um, is very foreign, because there was this interesting shift in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries away from a focus on the communal lives of your families and your communities to an increasingly individual focus. And it's so hard to really, to really highlight enough. I don't believe there's a way you can overstate how foreign the idea of the individual over the collective, how foreign that is to the scriptures. And how, even though it is something that I think for us, one of the, the early things that we notice, especially in kids, um, as they, especially as they hit puberty, kids want to, as they're experiencing these powerful emotions, all they want is to be an individual. And all that they want as they grow up and as they get older and older, as they go toward graduation, they want more and more. They get their license and they want to be the individual. And they get, graduate from, from high school and they want to go into their trade or they want to go to college and they want to be their individual. And our society reinforces that. And there's nothing wrong with that, that feeling of independence because codependency is not the answer. Um, I am a millennial, and, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard um, those in, in certain older generations 
talking about how my generation is too codependent on their generation. It's boomers. Um, In case you didn't know, there's this strange war that seems to be going on between millennials and boomers, even though it's kind of not anymore because millennials are are by and large more my age than 20-year-olds now. Um, so if you, uh, if you want to complain about the younger generation, it's Gen Z now, it's not millennials. Just throwing that out there. Um, but there's that idea of, of the younger generation being too codependent, but the idea, the, the counter of codependency, of, of that, that image that sometimes we get of people like living in their parents' basement and not having a job or those kind of things, the answer that we often give is that we need to make it so that we don't have to rely on anybody. We seek, sometimes we seek such a radical independence that it pushes people away. Now, there could be a whole conversation about how um, the, the, the thinking of I can't rely on anybody else and I must rely on myself is actually a, a, a trauma response, and that's a whole thing, but I'm not a psychologist, so I don't feel like I can talk, uh, talk with expertise on this. But I am a pastor, and I like to think of myself as a, a somewhat of a scholar having an advanced degree. And I will say that while I cannot speak about the psychology of it, I can speak about how that level of hyper-independence that we have developed stands in contrast to the way that God designed you and me and us to be. In our modern world, I think one of the greatest challenges that we face is that though we are in many ways connected, it's, it's kind of a paradox because Even over the pandemic, we are now even more connected than we were before the pandemic happened. I don't know for certain how many of us knew about Zoom in 2019. Is there there anyone here that had never heard of the application Zoom before 2020? Anyone here that had never heard of it, never thought about it? Is there anyone here that's never done a video call before the pandemic started? Like, you've just never had to do a... Like, there are so many of us that, that we've had to learn whole new concepts and whole new technologies. And so we are now guaranteed we have more... We have one extra avenue of connectivity. And yet, I see us once again descending into a a thought process that though we are hyper-connected, we are now seeing people becoming more and more isolated. It, It is like we've just reverted back to the way things were. And it was one of, the, one of the things throughout the pandemic, my hope was that this would shock us out of our status quo. But for many people, the, the pandemic just, for some of us, forced us inwards and not, some of us have never gotten out of it. And what we have discovered through all of this is how dangerous isolation really is. And this is seen in our, in our scientific and our educational and our religious communities. We've seen the danger of this. And I've got to give a shout out to any teachers. And if you know any teachers, man, you've got to thank them because they, they recognize this early and have done as much as they can to try to keep their students connected in some meaningful ways because it is, they saw that that these children needed these relationships even at the height of the social and and physical isolation because they saw something that is, I believe, something that we are at least recognizing and trying to remedy. And sometimes we go too far with the way we try to remedy these things. It it often really is that, that pendulum that swings and oftentimes it will swing too far 
But we are aiming for, because we recognize, and teachers are recognizing this, families are recognizing this, and honestly, I think businesses are recognizing this too, even though oftentimes uh, uh, industry and business is a little slow in the uptake um, to, to really recognize and adapt this. But we are recognizing more and more and more how much humanity is hardwired for relationships, that humanity was created to be in life-giving relationships with one another. And I think this is not surprising. I think most of us recognize this, that it is, it is one of the instinctual basic needs that God coded into us from the beginning. In fact, one of my, my favorite things to illustrate is how that storyline is connected throughout all of scripture. Um, I think it's easy for a lot of us to, to focus our minds on the gospels or the New Testament when we talk about, uh, when we talk about the church, but right from the very beginning, from Genesis 1, from the conversation that God has when he looks to create humanity, it starts from the very beginning and goes through to the end of the book of Revelation. God creates us for relationship because that is what the Godhead is. God exists in community. We talk, it's this, again, I talk about paradoxes, which are things that, that seem to contradict but, but somehow exist. And we talk about God as being one person, but existing in three persons, three unique, separate, yet connected individuals. And we often call the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Son, of course, being Jesus. And so when you read the narrative, this, this beautiful poetic language representing the beginning of the world, we see in Genesis chapter 1, God says, let us make human beings in our image to be just like us. And I think we can often really get into the weeds here when we talk about how we as individuals are like God. And I do think that's important. We talk about actually one of the common terms. It's a, uh, it's a Greek term called the imago Dei, which is the image of God, that we, we do talk, and I think it's appropriate, to talk about how God places that image in each one of us. And I think in the world that often judges us for uh, various things that are immutable or unchangeable that we have no control over, whether it is, whether it is our height or our body weight or, or how we look or even to the degree of like how successful we have the capacity to be, we often get judged by these things that, quite frankly, many of us cannot change even if we want to. And it is important that we understand that God places value in us, in each and every person that is the image of God and that has value intrinsic to you that cannot be taken away. But I think we often miss when we talk about let us make human beings in our image to be just like us, we lose the plural of the wording. We lose the fact that when God created humanity, that God was not doing that so that we can be a collection of individuals. Instead, he clearly says that part of this is to be like God who exists in community in some way, bound together by perfect love. In Genesis 2, we see yet again, God has created a man to begin, and he recognizes almost right away in Genesis 2.18, he says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, and so I will make a helper who is just right for him, somebody who complements and builds him up and encourages and strengthens, and we see that paradise, which is represented by the garden that we call Eden, was created for them and that their relationship was the basis for that garden to thrive. And they worked together in relationship with God and there was this beautiful harmony that happened 
that as they grew together as husband and wife and as they grew together in their relationship with God, humanity and creation flourished. But just one chapter later, and we don't know how much time is supposed to have elapsed between chapter 2 and chapter 3, but we see that one of the immediate downfalls of sin entering the conversation of humanity's rebellion against God is the breakdown of their human relationship. Because again, we often talk about how that sin separated the first humans from God. And that is an important part of the story. Clearly, this matters. The, the scriptures do give weight to this throughout all of the scriptures. But it is important that we recognize that, that immediately, before we see, before we even really recognize or address the breakdown of the relationship between the humans and God, we recognize and we see how quickly that relationship between the man and the woman deteriorates. In verses 12 and 13, we see that, that God has come to them and they had been hiding because they had became aware of their nakedness. It's actually the last line in, verse, in chapter 2 that says, The man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. And this idea was is that there was nothing, there was no need to cover because there was no need to protect yourself, to protect the most intimate areas, and to cover them was unnecessary at this time. But when they rebelled against God, they suddenly felt vulnerable. They suddenly felt like they had something that they needed to hide. And so they hid from God, and God comes to them. And in a way that I think seems more cheeky than it is, God asks, what are you doing? And they were like, well, we're hiding from you because we're naked. And God says, well, how do you know that you're naked? Who told you that? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to? And so the response that you see on the screen in verse 12, the man begins by replying, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. And I think it's important, you probably notice there's two things that I think are important with his statement. There was the blame of his wife. It's her fault. She gave it to me and I ate it. But it's even more important to also recognize how he pointed to his wife. And then he said, it was the woman you gave me. You did this. If you hadn't made me have a wife, I wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. And then God again goes to the woman and says the same thing. What have you done? And she immediately then accuses somebody else, accuses the serpent, which is a whole metaphor uh, for, uh, I think, a couple of things. Number one, it, it's a metaphor for evil. We often, uh, we often suggest that that is Satan. We see no reason to actually believe that this is Satan, um, but we do see that it is a representation of, of, uh, of evil, at very least, and perhaps our own desires and our own temptations as well. But we see immediately this shift that happens when humanity rebels against God and one another, things begin to fall apart. And throughout all of the scriptures, over the 39 books of the Hebrew scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament, we see the far-reaching consequences of humanity's fractured relationship with God and humanity's fractured relationship with one another. In fact, you could probably call the Old Testament especially a, a, a series of stories where God's grace and mercy prevailed despite his people's stubbornness and selfishness. And we see it again and again and again where people are so consumed by their own selfish desires that they will throw one another under the bus, they will murder and rob and steal and connive and conspire over and over and over again. What fractured in the garden seems to lead to a full-on break between God and humanity and between humanity and one another. 
And so Jesus enters the scene. And if you ask many of us what the importance of Jesus is in our lives, we often once again revert to that personal, individualistic understanding of why we needed Jesus, why Jesus was important. We may talk about the significance of his teaching, of his life, of his miracles. Usually it will go to his death and his resurrection. And if push comes to shove, we would say that Jesus had to die so that I could go to heaven. Or they might say something like, uh, so that I could be made right with God. And that comes back to that modern, to a degree, there is a, I think, uh, an extra level of, of American individualism that, that we have a, a bit of a uniqueness to us as Americans um, that we've been socialized to believe that our own dreams and goals and personal fulfillment takes precedence over everything. That all that really matters is me and I am only responsible for me. And so we see that with our relationship with Jesus. We use that term uh, when I was a kid, at very least, the idea of a personal savior was, was very, very common. I remember as a, a four and five-year-old being encouraged to ask Jesus into my heart to become my personal savior. And you probably did too. And that is not, again, once again, that's not saying that's a bad thing. But one of the offshoots, one of the consequences of that is that many times we get into this mindset where we will declare that my only responsibility is between me and God. I have no responsibility to you. Because the things that we place the highest value on are us. It's me. And I think that tells you, when, when you look at, at a culture, you really can start to understand and see the, the impact of that thought process. Because when you, if you were to be asked, what are the ways that you can engage to go deeper in your relationship with God? Most of us know probably two or three things that we can do, and all of them end up being things we can do alone. We hear a lot about uh, private devotions. I was raised to, to seek that as one of the highest levels of personal discipline for, for, spirit, for a spiritual life. Uh, private prayer is one of them. We, we, we think of, of all of the things that we can do on our own to connect with God in some meaningful way. And there are many other things. Prayer and fasting is one of them. Um, things that we, we sacrifice personally uh, for God is definitely something that we have embraced. And whether we've meant to or not, we have come to believe that our personal relationship with God is for the purpose of our own individual fulfillment. And so if there is ever a tension between our individual fulfillment and another person, then it stands to reason that I must chase my own personal fulfillment in the search and in the journey toward finding God. And the result of it is, is what I believe to be a fractured church. Even though America, in many ways, is still probably one of the country's most steeped in Christian values, there is still very much this, this narrative um, that, pre that pervades our culture, that America is a Christian nation. And we can argue the, the merits of that all we want, but it is hard to deny that there is at least some religious influence in, baked into the fabric of our country. And yet, in spite of that, there is this lack of meaningful Christian community that is at times entirely absent from American Christian lives and American churches across the nation. And I think it's important that we look to Jesus to hear what he has to say to us about 
the way that we live our lives. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to spend a little bit of time to begin with in Matthew chapter 22. And you probably know um, a little bit about Jesus' interactions and his relationships uh, to the religious ruling class. Um, in, in first century Israel, while the politics of the day were heavily influenced um, at the top level by Rome, who had been the occupying force of the people of Israel in Jesus' day, uh, the cultural leaders were by and large still religious. Uh, some of them were called Pharisees. They were a, a pretty strict religious order uh, that that was founded really to call people back to faithful, faithfully living for God and taking the scriptures seriously. And, and while I think we often give them a pretty negative uh, reputation because of how they interacted with Jesus, it's important that we don't forget that Pharisees were founded because of their faithfulness to God and that they became radicalized down the road to the point that they could not even recognize the very God that they served and the Messiah that they sought. But others were uh, a group called the Sadducees, which were in some ways um, very much at, at, at odds with Pharisees. They held very different beliefs, um, in, using perhaps the a modern, which is a very, it's, it's not a great metaphor, but if you are pretty tied into the religious world, you might have heard of like conservative and progressive Christians today. Um, it, it would at least be somewhat comparable, with the exception of both groups had significant amounts of, of social influence that I don't believe uh, is, is, is as common today. But there was this significant divide where there would be accusations of the, the, the other group's faithfulness to God. And it was a common thing. If you didn't line up with my understanding of the scriptures, then there was doubting that you were faithful to God at all, which might sound familiar today. There's one thing that there is overlap in. There is that overlap that if you don't believe like me, you don't love God at all. And a common thing that they would do, regardless of whether they were Sadducees or Pharisees, they would try to entrap Jesus, because I wonder if part of the issue was that Jesus was too conservative for the Sadducees and too liberal for the Pharisees. He didn't fit in any boxes well. I think he does that on purpose. He still does that today, if you believe it, that Jesus is not, is not wholly aligned with any political movement or ideology. In fact, he should, when we understand him correctly, he should offend our sensibilities regardless of the politics or the ideologies that we embrace because he does call us to be countercultural, not just to reinforce what we already believe. And so they come to him, and they, they ask him in Matthew 22, in verse 36, they ask him, teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? The law of Moses was essentially the religious rule of the day. This is what people, at least in religious circles, and often when, when Israel was independent, it was not just the religious law of the day, it was just the law of the day. And so there would be often debates among the religious class, uh, whether it was uh, teachers, rabbis, they called them, that would be kind of more the, the preachers um, or maybe evangelists of the day um, would, would teach their own interpretation and would have different understandings of which of the commands of God were the most important. And it was kind of a, uh, it was kind of a test of your faithfulness to give the answer that Jesus gives. He starts out in verse 37, Jesus replies, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And if you were a Jewish person in this day, he answered rightly. In fact, I think for a lot of us, when we think of the greatest commandment, when we think about our call as Christians, this is what we think of, verses 37 and 38. And if for us, we are happy just to stop there. In fact, one of the things that is common, you probably have a feeling of where I'm going with this, because you know that Jesus doesn't stop. Now, Jesus, in verse 39, says there is a second that is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. 
he goes on to say the entire law and all of the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. And where this is transformative, where this is challenging, is that we often in our mind, we think of one and two as if we have to divide them up, we have to first love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And once we get there, we can move on to number two. And so for many of us, we are so consumed by trying to chase after number one, by loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, that we assume that so long as we chase after this, that the second command can wait. That so long as you are maintaining your fidelity to God, your faithfulness to God, you can wait to enact the second command. But Jesus here is not giving an idea of hierarchy. If anything, number two is added in addition to and inextricably linked to the first. When Jesus said the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands, he is not saying if you divide and conquer, you can be one for two and at least 50% will get you a passing grade if you're still in high school, in some classes, in some schools. That was never the purpose. The purpose was not to identify that loving God is more important than loving your neighbor. What he was doing is reminding us that one of the ways that you love God is revealed in the way that you love people. Your love for God must overflow into love for others. Your love for people, therefore, is an extension of your love for God. These are connected in such a way that it has been throughout history within the church, particularly in the first 1,500 years of church history, this idea of loving God as somehow divorced or separated from an ability to love people was never considered, was never even thought possible. Because people existed as part of communities, as part of families. To such a degree, um, when I, I remember talking to somebody years ago at this point, um, that we were talking about the book of Acts. And the book of Acts shows the early days of the church. And one of the things that you'll see if you read the book of Acts, which I highly recommend, it's fascinating to see some of the challenges of, of living out the Gospels that they had on these first Christians. And one of the hallmarks of this group was that they were selling their belongings, they were leaving their, their extended families, they were moving into essentially communes, living together. And, 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 and Acts 2 would talk about how they, nobody ever had anything in need because people were giving to those who were in need freely. And one of the things that I have heard quite often is, well, that would have been easier in Jesus' day because they weren't so individualistic. And so we, that to me is just a reminder of how easy it is to convince ourselves that it's okay not to follow what Jesus says. Uh, if you find yourself there, this is not a, a desire to, to make you feel condemned. In fact, it's a reminder that it is for all of us, very, very, very easy to find excuses because Jesus' day, to say that these people were meant to come out from their families and to join a community that was not their family was unheard of and unbelievable. There were people that it was much more common, and this is actually when you hear about persecution um, in, in, the, in the Far East, that's why, because many of these Eastern nations still have this communal thinking. And so if somebody gives their life to Jesus, it is so baked into the family that that is a rejection of their family, not just of their God. There is no separating the communal nature. And so to be a disciple of Jesus in Acts and to be a disciple of Jesus now in some of these Mideastern and Far Eastern countries necessitates such a commitment 
that one would be willing to give up even family. Now, I'm not suggesting that that is absolutely what has to happen here. We are a different culture. But it does challenge us to rethink how we understand what it means to follow Jesus. How we understand what it means to serve God and what it means to be faithful to God. Because while for some of us, we can be convinced that, that serving God is just a matter of getting up and reading our Bible and praying, and that's all that we really need, God calls us to something more and something better than a personal relationship with Jesus. Because, of course, while your relationship with Jesus needs to be personal, it is a personal, an exclusively personal relationship with Jesus robs you of the joy that God has for you. Because one of the things that I think has been something that I've said for years now is that one of the core things that Jesus came to do is to restore what we lost in the fall. That, that when Jesus came, Jesus set right all of the things that humanity did wrong, whether it was in the garden or since the garden. And again, it's that challenge that we have to remind ourselves, and sometimes it needs to be this constant reminder, that what broke in the garden wasn't just that relationship with God, but it's that relationship with humanity. And that Jesus calls us to set right in our relationships with each other what for so many of us goes naturally wrong. And if you look at the scriptures that follow after the life of Jesus, you see that again and again that the scriptures unpack what this looks like, that the scriptures unpack how we as followers of Jesus can live this out in our lives, in our daily lives, that we can show the world how different we can be because by serving God, by loving God, it also gives us the capacity to love people that perhaps we may have been separated from or forgive those who perhaps we have wronged in the past, that loving God binds our hearts together and makes us one and invites us into something greater than we could be on our own. Coming back to the book of 1 John uh, chapter 4, part of which uh, Nate read earlier, and I appreciate that because this whole, the, it seems like when you read anything that is attributed to the Apostle John, uh, so either the Gospel of John or First and Second and Third John at very least, you see this thread come through of the supremacy of love and the call to love, not just loving God, but he really hammers this again and again that we must be people defined by love. So verse John chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 16. It says, John says, we know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love. And all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. We can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. And such love has no fear. This perfect love expels all fear. And if we are afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love we love each other because he first loved us. And what is, is so difficult, and it's not going to be on the screen because I wasn't planning on reading this, but I feel like I've got to keep reading to the end of this chapter. Verse 20, if someone says, I love God but hates a fellow believer, the person is a liar. For if we don't love the people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? 
And he's given us this command, those who love God must also love their fellow believers. There is an awful lot of, of us that when we are confronted with this verse, we, we like to really hang this Christianese of, uh, of I don't hate anybody. And, and this is something I've gotten into. It's like, you know, you, you get into this thing where it's like, oh, I just, I, I want nothing but terrible for this person, and I really dislike them. I don't want calamity to fall upon them. But I don't hate them. And we, have you ever seen that where somebody will really bend over backwards to try to say, like, I mean, hate is such a strong word. I remember for a long time that I defined hate, and the line, this is just funny how the mental gymnastics go. I defined hate specifically as wanting somebody to go to hell. That, for me, was what hate was. So anything short of wishing hell upon them, which, for those of you that probably know me, I don't wish hell on most people. So it opened me up to the ability to wish nothing but damage in your life to treat you poorly because I defined what hate meant. And for me, hate meant that if it falls short of wishing hell upon you, it's fair game. Therefore, I don't hate. But you'll notice in here that the standard that John is talking about, the standard that Jesus is talking about, is not simply an absence of hate. An absence of hate isn't enough. That the goal is not just to not wish that you go to hell. That the goal and the call and the command is if we love God, we prove it by the way we love each other. In John 13, Jesus is, is beginning his last days with his disciples. And I think maybe this is why I keep kind of gravitating uh, to these, these chapters. Because, of course, a couple of weeks ago, we were in John chapter 15. And in John chapter 13, these are Jesus' parting words. And these words matter. If you know somebody is getting ready to pass or to leave or you're getting ready to part, you tend to put greater weight on those final words. And in John chapter 13, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he is telling them explicitly in verse 33, he says, Dear children, I will only be with you a little longer. And as I told you, the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't go. You can't come where I am going. And this is in the, the upper room where they were experiencing and enjoying their last dinner together. And perhaps the, the, the disciples didn't realize that, but Jesus certainly knew it. And so while he is with them, he wants to impart something on them. And it's something that was hard for his disciples to grasp. And you'll see this. This isn't necessarily a wholly new concept, but what is new is the length to which Jesus calls his disciples to go. So it goes immediately following. He says, I'm going to give you a new command. Love each other. Now, that's not the new part. You know that. In fact, loving your neighbor as yourself is literally something we just read. Almost literally. And it is something that is, that is as old as the scriptures are. Because this was, a, some, this was something, loving your neighbor as yourself is one of the early commands that were given during the time of Moses. And so you're having generations and centuries of loving your neighbor as yourself. This was critical. This was at the core of, of Jewish belief and Jewish thought and really has come to the point where every major religion in the entire world has some version of loving your neighbor as yourself. The golden rule to do unto others is that manifestation of doing and loving and treating people as you wish to be treated but that's not what Jesus does here. This is what makes this command new. This is what raises the standard and makes it extraordinarily harder. He says, this is the new command I'm giving you. Love each other just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. This was what was new. And this became the foundation of what it means to serve Jesus. 
not whether we love as we wish to be loved or not loving as we love ourselves, but loving the way that Jesus loved. You probably know that one of my I probably most quoted passages of all of the New Testament comes from Philippians chapter 2. And this, again, is all under the auspices, all under the, the umbrella of relationships. Now, in the New International Version, uh, it actually puts that explicitly, says, in your relationships with each other. The, the New Living Translation that I am preaching from today, that is the assumption that all of this is talking about your relationship with people. In verse 3, he's talking about don't be selfish or try to impress people. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. Don't look out for your only your own interest, but take an interest in others. So the assumption is that verse 5 is continuing this. That verse 5 continues this thread of your relationship with others. And he says you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God was something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in a human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on the cross. So yet again, we're seeing that the expectation that Jesus gives to us is not loving you as I love me, and it's not treating you as I wish you would be treating me. But my call is to love you as Jesus loved me. And that changes everything. That has the power to change how we interact with each other. I love one of my favorite authors, and I, I will continue to encourage you to read uh, his books, um, I believe this is from Repenting of Religion, author and theologian Greg Boyd says that the only criteria that matters then in assessing whether anything has any value within the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God that, is, that God is building on earth is love. And love defined as Jesus dying on the cross for those who crucified him. If there was ever any measure of what it means to love as Christ loved us. It is this. Romans chapter 5 tells us that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That is the core of what this means. When Jesus invites us to take up our cross, this is what he means by lowering ourselves, humbling ourselves, seeking out the good for others, raising up others. This is what he's talking about. This humility, this giving, this, this, this life that is dedicated to showing and demonstrating the love of God. Jesus in John 13 goes on to say that this is how the world will know. The proof of whether or not we serve Jesus will not be in our piety, in our, our willingness to, to be committed to not doing what we would recognize or consider as sin. It's not in the way that we are committed to reading our Bible daily or praying daily, though again, those are important. But Jesus says the way that you will prove to the world that you follow me is in the way that you love one another. This is it. This is the way. It is not in your personal piety because as first john or sorry not first john first corinthians verse 13 says that that really it's one of the, probably the most well-known chapters in all of the bible but it, paul says again and again and again i can do extraordinary things i can do unbelievable unthinkable things but if i lack this love they are wastes of time and he is including things like if i could speak to a mountain and it would move it would be worthless without love that if i gave myself to martyrdom yet i have not love that sacrifice means nothing. It is in many ways unthinkable to many of our modern sensibilities that has tied our religion to these private disciplines to think of the supremacy of love, the thing that matters most in the world. In fact, Paul would actually go on to say that the thing that fulfills all of the law 
is just the loving your neighbor. Because the assumption is that the only way that you can love your neighbor is if you love God, if you've had an encounter with God that transforms you. And the beauty of the invitation to God and what God does for us is invite us into a community defined and embodied, embodying grace and love the way that Jesus does. And we embody that grace and that mercy by loving each other the way that Jesus demonstrates his love to us. And it is the beautiful thing that allows us to overcome our differences and to to overcome that which divides. And I know we live in a world that likes to highlight our differences, that likes to push us ever increasingly apart from each other. And again, it's easy to point to them, the others, whatever you might consider the others to be, and say they are to blame for such a separation. But within the confines of the church, within our responsibility as Christians, it doesn't matter the, what the they do. What matters is how we respond. And the command to love is all-encompassing and non-optional. When we love like Jesus we open, our, we open up the hearts who have been hardened. When we love like Jesus, we demonstrate the healing power of God. When we love like Jesus, we show others that the possibility exists to be loved in the same way and that God is love and they see that in the way that we love each other. Henri Nouwen said it well when he talks about the community that is a mosaic, which is one of the inspirations for the name of our church. And he talks about this with the, the idea of love is what binds us together. That though we are different, he says every person is a little piece of a different color. And together, all of the pieces show us the face of God. And it serves as that reminder that in the kingdom that God is instituting, in the kingdom that God is inviting us to be a part of, we must do this together. We become the mosaic that God has designed us to be when we choose to love as God invited us to love. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to close in song. I, I recognize that this is this is a hard call, a hard invitation for us to, to embrace together. And I know that, that people can be hard to love. In fact, when Katie and I were talking about how do we close this song, I, I, I suggested to sing Lord, I Need You because it is, it is a reality that people are not easy to love sometimes. That, that, that this command to love as Jesus loved is hard and sometimes it is hard because we are human. And the, the call to love like Jesus feels superhuman. It feels like it's beyond our capability. And so it is part of why we need to lean into Jesus in these moments and call out to him and commit together that we, so much as it is within our power to do so, we will love as Jesus loved. Not because they love us first, but because he loved us first. So I want to invite you, if you'd like to stand with us and just take in this moment, this song that is a, a cry to God, a cry of confession, which perhaps that is where you are. You are recognizing that, that you have not embraced and embodied this command. Or perhaps you are struggling and you are wrestling and you're on this journey and you've been trying to, but you know how extraordinarily hard this is. And perhaps you even have somebody in your mind pictured that you know you have not lived up and you've not embodied that love. Perhaps your cry to God today is, Lord, I need you because I know I need to show and express that love to them. 
And God, it is hard, but I commit to loving as you loved me. Would you sing with us? God, we thank you for how you've loved us. Lord, when we look at the history of humanity and we look at the history of our own lives, I hope that we can point to the times where you have expressed your love for us, even when we feel as though we don't deserve it, even when we have broken faith with you. Lord, may we be changed and transformed by that love. May that love impact us, Lord, and may we take that and may we become the body of Christ, the the representation of you as we encounter others. Lord, may it truly be said of us that we would embody your command to love one another as you have loved us. So God, whether, whether you have placed an individual on our hearts or if you've simply called us to rethink how we live this out. God, may we commit today after day to becoming more and more like Jesus as you expand our capacity to love as you have loved us. So go with us. We pray we need you every hour. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' mighty and matchless name. Amen and amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.